0: Hello, everybody, this is Jake speaking, just here with a brief message for you all at the start of this June or maybe July extra episode now. Because it's fair to say that we've had some delays and turns of events with this one in particular. So, I guess starting off, we've had the usual array of technical issues. We've been suffering from low recording levels in places. At present, I'm not sure whether that's the if it's a recording issue or whether one of the mics might be on the way out and i personally am hoping it's not the latter so obviously we've done what we can to clean that up patch it as best we can but i'm not able to say at this particular point in time how well we've done because some of that work is still yet to happen at the time of recording so if it's quiet in places a thousand apologies for that so on the regards to new equipment actually that's still something we're looking at working on but there's some stuff that happens that needs to happen in the department first. So it's still in the pipeline, hopefully. And we've had the issue of both executive producers being away in the second half of June. Naomi has been away for for a bit, and she is now at a conference, I believe. So there will hopefully be some material forthcoming from that. Can't say at this point. And I was away for the little task of getting married, and subsequently being on my honeymoon out in Reykjavik. Very nice. And staffing is always more difficult for us in summer with people going away with things like that, outside of the absence of command at the top. So, thank you once again for your patience. And we now return to our previously scheduled June, or perhaps July, extra episode 2018.
1: The Jodcast, currently covered in a pile of Martian dust, with Matt Malenta and Song Lee, Josh Hayes, Emma Alexander, Rachel Ainsworth, Jake Morgan, and Tom Scrag. The Jodcast, June 2018, Extra Edition. Hello, and welcome to the Jodcast. I'm Josh, and joining me in the studio are Emma and Rachel. Hello. Hello.
2: Hi.
1: In the show this time, and Song Lee and Matt Malenta answer your astronomical questions. And we interview Dr. Anna Watts about thermonuclear bursts and exotic matter on neutron stars. But first, before all that, Jake Morgan is talking to Ben Shaw in this month's Jodbyte. Hello, I'm Jake, and I am lucky enough to be
0: joined today by one of our Jodcast veterans, Ben Shaw. <laughs> yeah, I don't know about lucky,
3: but yeah, here I am. It's quite weird being on this side of the mic. Yeah. Um, Have you ever been interviewed before?
0: I'm no. guessing
3: no. I've done Ask an Astronomer, mm. but I've never done an actual interview Um yeah, so I'm, those of you who recognise my voice may remember myself and Charlie were Jake's predecessors. Effectively, we ran the podcast for two years, although I have to say you're doing a much better job. This will go out on the 15th, whereas ours almost never did.
0: I don't know, Ben. I, I wouldn't <laughs> want to tempt fate like that.
3: <laughs> well, for, you're recording this on the 8th. Yes, we are. We would have recorded this on the 14th. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> So just purely from a logistics point of view, you're doing a way better job than we did. So there you go. Uh, Well, we'll we'll see what happens. I'm
0: I'm still not comfortable (laughs) enough to make promises at this stage. (laughs) But at the moment, on the 8th when we're recording this, we can live in hope. Indeed. That's all we can do. Yeah. Okay, so we've got you here for a
3: job fight today, Ben, because you have had a paper out recently. Yes, I have. That's my nth paper. I can't remember what number it is. Um, But I'm I'm a fourth year PhD student. Um, I'm about to undergo the horror of my PhD, Viva, which is the oral exam where you defend everything you've done in the last four years. Um, And one of the things we did... um, So I'm interested... I'm a pulsar astronomer. I'm interested in... um, Well, pulsars are kind of famed as these accurate clocks And if you look at a pulsar, you've got a pretty much perfect clock in the sky, which isn't really true. Most pulsars are actually pretty rubbish clocks, actually. In order to turn them into good clocks, we need to understand why they're bad clocks. And I work on trying to understand those bad clocks as much as I can. Um, And one of the, as as it were, timing irregularities that we Encounter quite a lot of these things called glitches, which is where the pulsar is spinning at its normal happy rate of rotation and then suddenly it speeds up and we observe it rotating much much faster. And so recently, um, in fact, it was on the let me get my dates right, it was on the 7th or the 8th of November 2016, the Crab Pulsar, which is probably the most famous pulsar in the sky, arguably underwent its largest glitch that we've ever observed in that source since we started observing it in 1968. That wasn't meant to be part of my thesis, but it suddenly glitched and then it became quite a major part of my thesis. Ah, okay. And, yeah, you know, we've just, just published the paper on our results. Yeah, well, the universe does love to
0: keep us on our toes. It does, yes. Okay, so you've mentioned these glitches that you're interested in studying with this particular pulsar. With regards to these speed changes, is it a gradual process or is it an instantaneous step that we might be able to see in our data?
3: Generally, it's seen as instantaneous. I mean, it probably isn't. Nothing in the universe is instantaneous, probably. But the resolution we have allows us only to see the rotation rate before the glitch and the rotation rate after the glitch. Um, And we can see when we compare those two things that there's been a change to the rotation rate. We generally don't see the change happen itself. So in that sense the change we say the change is unresolved because we don't actually see it happen we just see the pre-glitch rate we see the post-glitch rate and we don't see the actual glitch itself with this particular glitch however we did catch some of it most of it i think 90 let me get my numbers right 93% of the glitch was unresolved so we managed to resolve 7% of the total spin up which is ah, okay. unusual And it's also unusual because most models of glitches predict that these spin-ups should take place on timescales of a few minutes or, at the most, sort of tens of minutes, maybe. However, this glitch, the unresolved part happened fairly quickly. And then this delayed bit that we managed to catch in action, this 7% of the total spin-up, actually rose. Its it's spin frequency rose over 1.7 days. So it's incredibly extended. Now, we've seen this before in two other crab glitches. Um, not to this extent. There was one in 1989 that took, I think, half a day to spin up and then one in 1996, which maybe took a few few hours or, or more. Uh, but this one was 1.7 days. So it's really interesting to us because it's the only instance we've ever seen this happen. These delayed spin-ups are possibly common. We don't know. The, the reason we were able to see this, I should say, in the crab is because we observe it a lot. So the, we've got a telescope at Jodrell Bank, the 42-foot telescope, and... Um, Basically, if the crab is above the horizon, we're watching it. So we're able to get extremely high, the word is cadence we use in radio astronomy, it means if something's high cadence, it means we observe it a lot. Um, So these high cadence, very long dwell time observations of the crab have allowed us to actually see this delayed spin-up. So most of the pulsars we watch at Jodrell Bank, we we time around 900 pulsars in total um, routinely and we usually observe them with a cadence of one every two weeks, one observation every two weeks. We look at the pulsar, we look at the predicted time of arrival, given what we already know about the pulsar, we compare the arrival time versus that prediction and see whether it just about looks like it's supposed to. And every two weeks we do that for each pulsar. So if one of these other pulsars glitches in the middle of that, those two fortnightly observations... Mm-hmm. we would never see this delayed spin-up ah, okay. simply because we're observing so infrequently. Yeah. So it may well be the case that if we had one telescope for every glitching pulsar out there and we just continuously watched it, these delayed spin-ups may well be common. But we've no way of knowing because the crab's the only one, really, that we observe with such high cadence.
0: And you've got a lot of other objects scattered across the sky that you want to keep tabs on.
3: Exactly, exactly. I mean, 900 pulsars to keep an eye on is quite a lot of telescope time. Yeah. Um, And so, you know, it's important that we have that 42-foot telescope because the Lovell telescope, although that does most of our routine timing, um, we have to divide its time between 900 pulsars and, you know, all that other science that other people want to do as well. So yeah, it's tricky. I wouldn't like to be the scheduler on Lovell. Yeah, it it sounds like (laughs) a difficult job. Yeah. (laughs) Right, so this kind
0: of... Well, this delayed spin-up behaviour, so this has never been observed in any other pulsars.
3: No. But okay. that could be just, a, as I say, that could be just a selection effect. We don't know. Mm, it could be. What One thing we do know, however, the Vela pulsar, which we can't see that from Jodrell Bank. It's too far south. Um, the telescopes in the southern hemisphere that observe it with almost as, as high cadence as we do the Crab. Um, and it's been shown to glitch exactly as models predict. Within The, the spin-up has been resolved to within a few minutes. And so that behaves itself according to the models, whereas the crab doesn't. Okay. So I think what ideally what we need to do is we need to time a lot more pulsars with as much cadence and dwell time as we do the crab and vela because we've no idea which of those two is typical. Right. Which is the problem. And it's like, you know, we, we have all this data on the crab and it's, it's trying to, you know, it kind of to me it's like um, uh, an anthropologist doing a study on the behaviour of children by studying one child with ADHD. Right. You you wouldn't be able to extrapolate to all of children if you're only studying a single child who doesn't mm. behave in a typical way. And so I don't think we're really probing the full glitch parameter space with the CRAB. Yeah, that makes sense. So we can't say at this point
0: whether the CRAB is perhaps one of a special subclass of pulsars no. or whether it's maybe the norm. Exactly. Oh, OK, Exactly. Well,
3: it certainly sounds like there's a lot more work to be done. There's a lot more work to do, a lot more radio telescopes to be built so we can have a ra- one radio telescope per pulsar. <laughs> <laughs> Funding yeah. welcome. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> right. So I guess the one big question that I haven't touched on yet is to how these glitches arise. What's,
3: what's the physical mechanism that drives them? We don't know exactly. We've sorted out the broader details we think. Now there are two prevalent models. One is um, related to the crust of the neutron star and another is related to the interior. So let's start with a crust one first. You can imagine when a, a pulsar first forms, it's spinning incredibly rap- rapidly and over time that rotation speed decreases. So the, the pulsar has a magnetic field, the rotation of that magnetic field has a braking effect On the pulsar if you spin a magnetic field you create an electric field and that electric field opposes the rotation of the spinning magnetic field and so gradually your pulsar slows down Ah, okay i'm desperately clinging on to undergrad electromagnetics at this point (laughs) i'm having to revise all my undergrad electromagnetism to pass Ah. this viva next week um and so gradually you can imagine you know if you extrapolate back in time to when the pulsar was born its rotation rate was incredibly rapid now, if you look at the Earth and the way the Earth spins, if you draw a line from equator to equator straight through the centre of the Earth and then you draw another line from pole to pole, you'll find that the line from equator to equator is longer. And that's because the Earth is kind of a squashed ball. Yeah. And that's because it's rotating, it's spinning. The angular momentum makes it kind of almost bow out in the what we call centripetal force. Um, and of course, when a pulsar is born, it's spinning at ridiculously high speeds. Um, How high is ridiculously high? It could be uh, as little as milliseconds when it first forms, and then it slows down incredibly rapidly to the... Some pulsars still spin at millisecond speeds, but they have a different evolutionary history, so we'll disregard those for now. The pulsars that I work on, which are the isolated pulsars that have never had a companion star, they will gradually slow down over time. Um, And so you can imagine when these pulsars form, they're oblate, they're they're like a rugby ball shape. And when they form, that crust crystallises into this rugby ball shape. And then as the pulsar slows down, its equilibrium shape is no longer a rugby ball. But at this point, that crust is now solid. At th- this point, that crust is now solid. And so because its equilibrium shape is more spherical than it was when it formed, this crust starts to accumulate stress.
0: Ah, uh, okay. So it will want to deform and assume this new equilibrium shape.
3: Yeah, exactly. So it will want to move itself towards being more spherical as the pulsar slows down. But of course, it's a rigid crust and it can't. And so, what might happen is that we end up with these plates forming on the crust of the neutron star that gradually give rise to starquakes, where instead of a gradual, almost sort of plastic creep towards being spherical, it actually just sort of jolts itself into a more spherical geometry. And when we do that, we change what's called the moment of inertia, which is a, a weird quantity. Which is related to the the way the pulsar is rotating and how fast it is rotating. Isn't it also geometry.
0: shape dependent as well?
3: Yeah, absolutely. The moment yeah. of inertia. Is I've got undergrad and... mechanics coming back to me now as well. Yeah, indeed. Um, and so when you when you change the moment of inertia very suddenly of the pulsar, you change the rotation speed and make it go faster. Right. However, there is. We've mentioned the Vela pulsar already. It glitches maybe once every year or so, and its glitches are all massive really, really big glitches like the order of parts per million, which is huge. Now, the amount of energy that would be required from the crust to produce those glitches cannot be accounted for by this gradual change of the geometry of the pulsar. There just isn't enough energy available in the stress in the crust to account for those glitches. And so we don't think that's a prevalent mechanism. It may explain some smaller glitches, but it certainly can't explain glitches. As a whole, and so the other more readily accepted model is related to the interior. So what we think is going on in the inside um, of the neutron star is that there is a superfluid. So this is like uh, a superfluid is like um, almost inertia-free fluid. You can imagine if you if you stir your cup of tea, you'll you'll produce this nice spinning vortex in the cup of tea, and gradually because of the friction between the liquid and the cup, and the friction between particles in the liquid itself, that fluid will gradually slow down, and then the tea will be nice and flat again. Yeah, with you a super exactly with a superfluid, you don't have those inertial forces inside the fluid. So if you stir your tea, and then take your spoon out, your tea will just keep rotating forever because it has no internal friction. Because it has no internal friction, it has nowhere to dissipate this energy to, and so we think there's a similar sort of fluid in the inside the neutron star. And that comes from the fact that we can observe some of these glitches to recover over timescales of several days or months. That kind of tells us that there's something superfluid going on in the pulsar. If it was a normal fluid, it would couple to the crust, the solid crust, much quicker. And so we don't think it's a normal fluid. Now, one of the properties of superfluids is that unlike the cup of tea, this normal fluid, when you rotate it, you produce a single vortex in the centre And you could maybe draw lines of... You could take one cell of fluid in your tea and track its motion around the cup and it would produce nice circular lines around the cup. Yeah. With a superfluid, if you take, say, a bucket of superfluid helium and stir it, you won't be able to do that. It doesn't rotate... The fluid doesn't rotate in this bulk motion in the same way. What happens, if you look down in your bucket of superfluid helium, you'll find lots of vortices forming. So if you stir it really quickly... You'll find there's a lot of vortices, and each of those vortices, those individual vor- one individual vortex, carries the angular momentum of the fluid. It's not carried in this bulk motion. If your fluid slows down, the number of vortices you see in your bucket of helium will reduce. So the density of vortices is related to the speed, the rotation speed of the fluid. Okay. So what happens when a superfluid slows down if it's able to slow down, if it's weakly coupled to the crust, it's that these vortices in the neutron star fluid that are formed, because it's rotating, will gradually move outwards towards the crust. And at the crust, they'll be expelled. And that allows the fluid to slow down, because the number of vortices per area is gradually reducing. However, there isn't a perfectly... It's not like your cup of tea in the cup, where you have tea and then you have cup. In the neutron star, you kind of have tea... And then you have some of the cup, and then you have the rest of the cup. So it's kind of flowing through the lattice of the crust. So, okay. so we've got superfluid permeating through the crust at this point. It's permeating through the inner part of the crust. So the density of the crust is is changing as okay. you go towards these so non-neutron the stars. So it's non-uniform. And so what you have is this inner fluid rotating around inside this inner crust, and it's passing through uh, nuclei. It's passing through lattice sites. It's passing through the actual structure of the crust itself. Now, it turns out, if you talk to a a solid-state physicist, that it's energetically favourable for these vortices to become pinned to nuclei in the inner crust. So they will just become pinned to these lattice sites and they will stay there. So if they become pinned to these lattice sites, it means they can't expel themselves out of the fluid.
0: Okay, so they're still weakly connected to the rest of this fluid inside the core.
3: Yeah, so the the fluid, if you can't expel these vortices out of your superfluid, your superfluid can't slow down. Mm. Now, we've already talked about the breaking of the pulsar through the external magnetic field, and we've already alluded to the fact that the fluid inside is weakly coupled to the crust. So, because we're breaking the pulsar, we're imposing a breaking force on the pulsar crust, by virtue of the fact that it has this strong magnetic field, the crust is slowing down, but the interior isn't because it's pinned to these lattice sites. And so you have in the inside, you have this fast, rapidly rotating fluid. And on the outside in the crust, you have this slower rotating crust. And every so often, for reasons we don't quite understand, the coupling strength between the fluid and the crust increases and suddenly, the fluid is able to deposit its supply of angular momentum that it's built up into the crust. And we suddenly see the crust speed up. And we, what we see, all we see is the radio emission from the crust. And we observe that as a glitch. Oh, okay. Now how, quite how these vortices become unpinned from the lattice sites, it's something we're still sorting out. We don't know how that happens. Um, There's a difference in the crab in the, if you look at the size distribution. So I've talked about the Vela Pulsar and its glitches. They're all roughly the same size and they all happen sort of quite regularly. There'll be a glitch every two years or so, or every one to two years. um, And all those glitches will be the same size. So the size distribution is flat, all the glitches are the same size. Whereas with the crab, the size distribution isn't flat. It's kind of almost like a bell curve. Most glitches are one size, but some of the glitches are bigger. Some of the glitches are smaller. And so the size distribution is slightly different. And so that tells us something. Um, We don't really know what, but you can imagine it looks like with a vela pulsar that we, if you can imagine that the inner fluid dumps its entire supply of angular momentum into the crust every time it has a glitch. So now you have a, a depletion of angular momentum in the superfluid at a glitch. And then over time that superfluid builds back up its supply of angular momentum as the crust slows down, but the fluid doesn't. And then you get to a particular critical lag between the rotation of the fluid and the rotation of the crust, and then you trigger a glitch. So it's a threshold effect. Right. But with pulsars like the crab, it doesn't seem like that's the case, because we have glitches of all different sizes. And so there's probably no particular threshold effect going on. But what we think might be happening is this uh, thing called an avalanche process where one vortex might become unpinned from its lattice site and then it will uh, interact with other vortices that are pinned to their lattice sites and free them because they're only weakly coupled to these lattice sites. And so if you give it a little jolt with a nearby vortex, if one vortex becomes unpinned and that gives a little jolt to a nearby vortex and then that vortex becomes unpinned, and gives a little jolt to another nearby vortex, you end up with this sort of avalanche of vortices suddenly becoming unpinned, um, being able to expel themselves from the fluid and causing an increase to the rotation of the crust. But that doesn't seem like a threshold effect, purely because we don't see the crab exhibit glitches that are all the same size. So there's probably something else going on. So it looks like possibly there's a different mechanism, probably to do with a superfluid, but there's a different trigger mechanism for glitches in velar-like vela pulsars and crab-like pulsars. We don't know what the difference is.
0: Well, I'm pretty convinced that there is a difference now from everything <laughs> you've just told me. Uh,
3: one thing we did notice in our paper, though, um, which you can read on the archive if you want. I think I, I wrote it, so it should be pretty understandable, I hope. I'm sure we um, can <laughs> track down a to it somewhere to put in the show um, notes. One thing we did notice is there seems to be a correlation between the size of the glitch. We, we looked at the history of crab glitches, and other people have done this as well. Uh, And this particular large glitch happened after a very long period where there were no glitches. So so we thought, that's interesting. I think there was something like 2,189 days since the last glitch. That's the longest period of time since we discovered the crap that it has gone without a glitch. So that led us to think, well, let's have a look at some other glitches and see how long it was since their last glitches. And it turns out there's a weak but very positive correlation between the size of a glitch, and the time since the last glitch. So that tells us something. It tells us that possibly what's happening is that when a glitch happens, the fluid dumps its supply of angular momentum into the crust, um, and then gradually that um, angular momentum builds back up as the crust carries on slowing down, but it doesn't reach a particular peak threshold like in the Vela Pulsar where all the glitches are the same size. Instead, it seems to trigger at random points in this lag. So you don't need a particular value of the lag to trigger a glitch. It seems to happen everywhere. And that potentially tells us something about this avalanche process, where it just suddenly happens that one or two vortices will become unpinned and trigger a load of others. Whereas in the Vela pulsar, it seems that, for whatever reason, all the vortices unpin at once when some critical lag is reached between the rotation of the fluid and the rotation of the crust.
4: Yeah.
0: It strikes me as being analogous to sort of nova events mm. where you're building up to some critical mass. You then have that release of energy producing an event with a certain magnitude.
3: Yeah, like we see this in um, type 1 X-ray bursts as well, um, where you have a neutron star recruiting from a low mass companion and you get a load of nuclear reactions forming on the surface. And then at some critical temperature, that will induce one of these bursts. Um, They they seem to be threshold effects. Once you've reached critical temperature, you can get these runaway nuclear reactions on the surface, and then you end up with either a nova or an X-ray burst, depending on what's doing the accreting. So that, I think, is analogous to what the Vela Pulsar is doing, where it has uh, a particular size glitch every time.
0: Yeah, once you've met this critical point.
3: Yeah, whereas the crab... and potentially quite a lot of other pulsars, it may well be that, you know, if, we, if we're using the NOVA or X-ray burst analogy, where where you, you see an X-ray burst or a NOVA, regardless of how long it's been, regardless of what the temperature is in your X-ray burst or NOVA environment. So there's two, there's, there's, a, there's a weird thing going on where the threshold is different and we don't know why.
0: Oh. Sounds like a job for another PhD student. It sounds like, like a
3: I'm... job for another PhD student. It sounds like we need to observe more glitches because we infer quite a lot about glitches as a phenomenon from the crab and vela yeah. and as i said earlier it's possible that neither of them are typical and yeah, we, it is possible. We, we really need to understand much better how other pulsars glitch unfortunately there aren't that many pulsars that glitch very often most pulsars that we've seen to glitch have done so only once
0: right so these are, are serendipitous observations
3: there. yeah absolutely um there's this other pulsar called uh, JO537-6910 which is is the most frequently glitching pulsar we know of it glitches once every 6 months and again its glitches are all roughly but not quite the same size and in that case there's a correlation between the size of the glitch and the time until the next glitch which is the opposite for what we saw in the crab where the correlation seems to be between the size of the glitch and the time since the last yeah. glitch
0: so that suggests this other pulsar is then maybe
3: more of a vela type object. Exactly. It suggests there's a threshold, a global threshold effect. The, the fluid re- the fluid lag, the fluid crust lag has to reach a particular value and then the thing just gives up and glitches. Whereas with the crab and pulsars like the crab, it seems to be quite stochastic and random in time, but there's still probably some local threshold effect going on that then triggers some global unpinning of the vortices. It's a nightmare. <laughs> it certainly does sound like a chaotic system. Yeah, exactly. It's like a sand pile, right? If you've if you if you've got a pile of sand and you, you're dropping, you know, you're holding some more sand above it and dropping it onto the sand pile and you see all these avalanches coming down mm. um, and they trigger these little mini avalanches and every so often you'll trigger a big avalanche and it's completely... You can't predict when that will happen. It's entirely stochastic. So, yeah, glitches are interesting.
0: <laughs> mm. Right, Ah, one thing we've not talked about yet. Well, we have talked about these crusts and superfluids, different layers, if you will, that make up neutron star. Hmm. Can we say anything about what they're composed of? Because I take it this... We're not dealing with ordinary matter here.
3: No, as I've said, we're we're dealing with superfluid matter for a start, which by definition isn't ordinary matter. Um, we think the crust itself is made of a rigid lattice of iron. Um and then as you go further, in, so the density will increase as you go further and further into the neutron star. So if you stick a stick into the neutron star towards the, the core. Then you're um, not getting that stick back. You're definitely not getting your stick back. Um, but if, if that stick measures density, you'll find as you, as you probe, you stick further and further in, your density will get higher and higher and higher. Um, and we don't really know what's going on in the interior. We think it's a, a superfluid. Uh, made primarily of neutrons, which is why we call them neutron stars. As you go further and further in, you end up with other species as well. What's going on in the core of the neutron star is anybody's guess. It could be some weird sort of quark soup, like quark gluon plasma, or some bizarre exotic fluid. But you'd have to have you'd have to ask somebody like um, Anna Watts, possibly, um, what the constituents of a neutron star are, rather ah, okay. than somebody like me. I uh, what I uh, what I observe. What I observe is radio emission from the crust and that's it Hmm. because that's all we can do with a radio telescope yeah radio doesn't tell us anything about the interior unless we see these glitches this is really the only probe we've got of the interior of neutron stars Hmm. is by observing these events
0: yeah because I mean even a technique like
3: transmission spectroscopy that's you're not going to cut the mustard with that probably not um apart from anything else neutron stars are tiny So one doesn't have to be very far away before it becomes completely unresolved in your telescopes anyway. Yeah. Um, So we don't really see much in the way of emission from the crust itself unless it's extremely bright or extremely nearby.
0: Well, I suppose now would be a good point to maybe move on to talk a little bit about your history on the Jodcast. (laughs) Are you sure? (laughs) 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 I'm <laughs> tempted to say how bad can it be, but I know that's a terrible idea.
3: Pretty much all of our shows went out about ten days late on average, but yeah, um, yeah, I ran the podcast before you did with yeah. Charlie. Well, people still enjoyed the content. I hope so. I hope yeah. so. I thought we did a good job. Uh, I reckon you did a good job. Yeah, yeah, we weren't particularly um, punctual, as it were, but it got done eventually. Um, And of course, we had Jodcast Live as well, which we we organised, which was fantastic. That's probably, as as stuff I've done on the Jodcast goes, that has to be my favourite day of them all, because it was just amazing. So Um, that's your top moment? That's my top moment, is uh, when we got it, because we really didn't know what it looked like. We had it planned with military precision, and I was having this nightmare all day of what happens if nobody turns up. (laughs) (laughs) And then we were just about set up, um, and then... Um, Sophia, who works at the Jodrell Bank Discovery Centre, came in and said, "There's a massive queue of people outside waiting to come in." I was like, "What? Brilliant! Yes, they're here because the tickets were free." And you know, people have lives and things come up, and you think, "Well, oh yeah, let's you know assume because the ticket's free, people might not necessarily prioritise coming because mm. um, there's no wasted money element." But it was amazing; everybody did, and it was it was fantastic. I don't think we had many no-shows. It was great. Um, so yeah, I was sad to give it up, but I'm glad to have given it up to people who obviously care about it. So, uh, And yeah. you have the
0: time to care about it as well.
3: Yeah, indeed. Um, that will change. Uh, yeah. what, what year are you in now? Um. So I'm coming towards the end of my second year now. Okay, and are you hoping to be done by the end of your third? Um, or will you be hanging around a bit longer?
0: Well, I'm on a three and a half year program, so... Okay. So yeah, for me, it's a question of how much data, if any, we're able to get from telescopes around the world. Sure. Because so, yeah, at the moment, the suite we've got access to at the moment has had a whole litany of technical problems.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: We've had one that was frozen in half a metre of ice. <laughs> we've got one with a wow. broken shutter. Okay. So yeah, the, the Liverpool Telescope, they've been having a, a rough time this season in their 2018 B call. Right. Dealing with extreme weather out there. Yeah.
3: This is the problem with optical astronomy, I guess. Is it optical, A Liverpool? Yes. Yeah. Um, you have to have telescopes in these really weird sites, whereas you can plonk a radio telescope anywhere. There's no people, pretty much. Mm. It doesn't matter. Um, but yeah, I, I gather you'll probably be wanting to hand over the Jodcast in maybe a year's time then or so, something like that. So, yeah, Probably something like that, but I would yeah. imagine. Prepare for problems. I mean, I was on a three-year problem. Problem? <laughs> it was a three-year <laughs> problem. I was on a three-year program not A three and a half year program, and oh, I'm okay. coming towards the end of my fourth year, and I'm still here, mm. so um, I haven't been paid for nearly a year.
0: Yeah, that's not good.
3: <laughs> so it's a wonder I'm not sleeping in uh, under my desk in my office. Um, but I'll be here for a bit longer actually. So hopefully, after my viva I'll be able to get involved in the Jodcast a bit more. I have a postdoc here, um, All right. So I'll be working on um. Something quite interesting, actually. I'll be working jointly with the European Space Agency. Okay. um, And what we're trying to do is establish a Pulsar timescale. As I said right at the beginning of this interview, you can use some Pulsars as clocks, but not most of them. We're hoping to use some of our best timers, the, the Pulsars that behave themselves the most, to basically steer an atomic clock. Because currently, our GPS satellites have clocks on board those are atomic clocks, and those atomic clocks drift with respect to terrestrial time standards, and so we have to continuously correct them. We have to continuously steer them towards the right time
0: oh, okay. by so using ground clocks. So relativistic effect by virtue of them being in space?
3: Partially, although we can correct for that. It's generally just a difference in the, the, the drift rates of the two clocks.
0: Oh, okay. So it's just the fact that you've got two isolated systems.
3: Yeah, just the fact that they, they, they keep time at different levels of precision. And so what we're going to be doing is looking at instead of correcting these clocks using some ground-based clock, is instead correcting these clocks using an ensemble of pulsars. So we're going to create ensemble pulsar time and use that to steer atomic clocks on board spacecraft, which can hopefully go towards things like navigation, because then we'll be able to autonomously navigate spacecraft without worrying about how far away they are, what delays um, there are in the signal from the Earth to the spacecraft, etc., um, the clocks will basically be able to steer themselves by just keeping a, an eye on an array of pulsars. okay. So that's hopefully what I'm going to be proving can happen as part of my postdoc. It's only 18 months, so I've got a lot of work to do.
0: Mm, sounds like it.
3: Yeah. And over the, you'll find as well over the course of your PhD that you end up with a bunch of ideas that you don't get time to do as part of your PhD. And you'll say, oh, that's a, I want to write a paper on that because that's a really good idea. And then it'll get to the end of your PhD and you realise you don't have time before your thesis is due. So I've got this stack of papers now that I want to write on top of my postdoc. So it's going to be a busy, busy few months, I think. I'm hoping to get a student to take some of the... uh,
0: Well, hopefully you'll get the chance to do
3: that. (laughs) Yeah, indeed. So it's going to be a busy, busy 18 months, but hopefully it'll be a fun one.
0: Hmm. Well, I'm sure that all of our listeners will wish you the very best of luck with that.
3: Thank you very much.
0: Uh, I guess that seems like a good place to leave it, really. Excellent. OK, so, Ben, thank you very much for your time. Thanks very much, Jake.
2: Thanks for that, Jake. Now, Tom Scrag interviews Dr Anna Watts about thermonuclear bursts and exotic matter on neutron stars.
4: I'm Tom Scrang and I'm here today with Dr Anna Watts from the University of Amsterdam. So welcome and thanks for agreeing to talk to us today.
5: You're welcome, it's nice to be here.
4: Let's start relatively gently. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what your research interests are?
5: Sure, so I'm an Associate Professor at the University of Amsterdam in the Netherlands. Uh, My interest is in neutron stars that explode. Um, I work on both thermonuclear explosions on neutron stars, which is a very well-observed phenomenon but still has lots of interesting mysteries for us to solve, Um, and I also work on magnetic explosions, kind of similar to solar flares, but occurring on neutron stars. I'm interested in the astrophysics of how the explosions occur, because explosions are fun, and I'm also interested in using the explosions one of the things we want to do is to peer deep inside the neutron star and understand the dense matter nuclear physics that happens inside and we can use the explosions to do that.
4: Okay, that sounds really interesting. I'm I'm intrigued and I'm looking forward to your talk later today because that's that's kind of my interest area as well. Um, But neutron stars exploding, now does the whole star explode or just a part of it or an explosion on it or...? What happens?
5: So it's just for the thermonuclear explosion case, it's just the surface layers. Um, So a neutron star has a kind of a a dense nuclear matter core and then a solid crust about one to two kilometers thick. Now on top of that crust, you can build up an ocean of materials. So neutron stars have oceans, but you should never go surfing on them um, because they tend to be made of things like hydrogen and helium, which in many cases, they are pulling essentially from a companion star. So they're sitting next to some poor unfortunate star who's having its material pulled into the gravitational field of the neutron star, and that material is settling down on the surface, and it makes a lovely hydrogen helium ocean. Hydrogen and helium, when you put it on the surface of a neutron star, it's hot and it's dense, and it undergoes thermonuclear burning, which is why you don't want to go surfing or swimming in these things. Sometimes that hydrogen and helium is is nice and well behaved, and it just settles gradually down, and gradually gets incorporated into the crust Um, but sometimes those thermonuclear reactions can be extremely unstable and so what we see is the whole ocean layer of the star actually exploding and that gives us a bright burst of x-rays which we can go and observe with space telescopes.
4: Okay interesting is this um, is the the fluid layer that the ocean Um, across the whole of a neutron star or is it like a a band around the centre or just patches?
5: We think it's across the whole of the neutron star um, but again it's it's pretty thin so the hydrogen helium layer on the outside is just a few metres thick then you go into the deep ocean which is maybe a few hundred metres thick which would consist of things like carbon for example you go into heavier elements as you go deeper down so yeah it's a very very thin ocean layer across the whole surface of the star.
4: Okay, they're neutron stars, so why hasn't the hydrogen and helium converted to neutrons, or the protons in the hydrogen?
5: So it will do as it goes deeper and deeper down, so basically as you pour more material onto the star, the hydrogen burns to helium, the helium burns to carbon, and the carbon then processes to heavier elements. It gradually gets incorporated into the neutron star crust, becomes more and more neutron rich, And then as material goes down through the crust and gets pushed down basically, eventually it will dissolve into a kind of neutron and proton fluid. So that happens in the interior of the star, but these outermost layers are quite low density. So it hasn't quite got to the stage yet where that could happen.
4: Right, okay. And this is part of the accretion process, presumably in a binary system?
5: Yep, that's right. So we see well over a hundred stars that have these kind of thermonuclear explosions, so all accreting neutron
4: stars. Can you give us an idea of how big these explosions are? I mean, numbers of hydrogen bombs, or is that just a, 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 a silly question?
5: Uh, no. So we'd be talking about, gosh, a factor of maybe ten to the seventeen or so larger than a hydrogen bomb.
4: Wow. Okay. Pretty yep. big. Yep. That's it's on the star and not yes. anywhere else. <laughs> <laughs> okay. How do you observe them then?
5: Right, so they basically because they're very, very hot, these explosions, we see them f- via bursts of X rays. So you have to use space telescopes. Fortunately for our health on Earth, we, we don't get X rays directly through the Earth's atmosphere. It's kind of frustrating for astronomers, um, but it's much better for us as people that this doesn't happen. Um, so we have to send telescopes into space to do that. Um, so we have to launch them. Um, so we tend to see these said so with X ray or perhaps with gamma ray space telescopes.
4: Right, I, I see from the notes I've got, because I went on the web and had a look, um, that you, you, you are involved, you have been involved with quite a few space-based te- space teles- telescopes. I'll start that again. I see from the notes I, I've taken from the, the web that you have been involved with quite a few space-based telescopes. Are you still involved? Is that an ongoing thing? Is, was that a deliberate choice?
5: It was. So I, I started my, my PhD research working in, in pure theory, um, computing things for gravitational wave observations. So that was my background, gravitational wave physics. Um, I then moved to NASA, to the Goddard Space Flight Centre, uh, and my research had been on you know, vibrations of neutron stars, different types of oscillations they could happen. And there were interesting observations in the X-ray during thermonuclear explosions of potential ocean waves developing in the neutron star. So whilst I was at NASA Goddard, I kind of branched off into X-ray astronomy and I worked very much at that time with data from the Rossi X-ray Timing Explorer. Um, so this was a mission that launched in 1996, started operating at the very, very start of 1996, uh, ran for about 15 years in total, actually deorbited about a month ago, finally. It stopped operation a long time before that, right. um, but finally crashed back down to Earth. So we, we shed a little tear for it then. Um, so I, I trained to use data from the Rossi X-ray Timing Explorer and to try and understand what we were observing. So that was a, a diversion into X-ray astronomy. Um, I then carried on doing more work on... It was nice to have data to work on. At that stage, the gravitational wave observations had not come along. Um, so I started then to work on, on gamma-ray space telescope data as well for magnetic explosions. Um, and then I got a chance to do something rather different, which is that a, a large group of scientists, so based initially primarily in Europe, to have started to think about what the next generation of X-ray space telescopes should look like. What should be the successor to the Rossi X-ray Timing Explorer? Now, when you start planning a, a future space mission, you're talking about decades of timescale. Mm-hmm. Basically, you have to come up with all the technology that you want to work, you have to make your science case nice and strong, and then you have to win a launch slot. And that is extremely difficult to do because everyone wants to send things into space and rockets are expensive. So I was asked, trying to think when it was now... Gosh, probably about 2011 or 12 or so, of would I get involved in helping to develop the science case for one of these future space telescopes. And the reason I was asked was because I'd worked on theoretical modelling, I had some interest in nuclear physics, and also I worked with the x-ray data, so I had a kind of crossover between different fields. And I think I was told at the time it wouldn't be that much work, but it would be very interesting. It's certainly been interesting, it's been an awful lot of work, that was a complete lie. Um, So I started working with a large consortium of people trying to make a science case for a a large area space telescope, uh, about a factor of 20 larger than the Rossi X-ray Timing Explorer, Um, and that was a mission called LOFT, the Large Observatory for X-ray Timing, Okay. um, competed for one of the European Space Agency launch slots, Um, didn't win unfortunately. But that's the way of space missions. You you propose and you propose again, and you propose again. Um, Our missions have now modified slightly, and now I'm involved in two potential missions. Um, One is the Enhanced X-ray Timing Polarimetry Mission. That's a joint mission between the Chinese Space Agency and European astronomers as well. Um, And that, if successful, would launch in the mid-2020s. So we're working on the mission concept for that. Um, The other one is STROBEX, which is a a mission, uh, which is a NASA probe study. Um, okay. That would launch kind of around 2030 if it's selected. So we're still working on these ideas for a very large X-ray space telescope um trying to work out what science we want to do, what science we can do, and how do we make the best case for being given a rocket to put it
4: on. Right, okay. That sounds like a lot of politics among other things. It is. <laughs> a bureaucracy. It's,
5: yeah. it's interesting because it's not just the pure science anymore, it's understanding the technology. Yep. It's talking to engineers. It's international relations. You know, you cannot make such an expensive mission without talking to other countries and figuring out different procedures. So, yeah, it's a lot broader than my basic astronomy training, but it's incredibly good fun.
4: Yes, yes, sounds it. Two things, then. Um, I'll come back to waves in the ocean, Mm because that that intrigued me. Um, But on the technology side, you talk about the science case. So you look at... um, what ideas you want to explore, um, what results could potentially mean and how it'd guide future research. But do you get involved with the design or the specification of the instrument as well? Or um, do you say, I want you to do this, and then come back and tell me when you've designed it.
5: It's a very iterative process. Um, So, yeah, ideally, we would say, yeah, this is what we want to do. Um, But actually, a lot of it is technology-led. You know, this is what the instrumentation would now let us do. What would that let you do as a scientist? Um, So, again, we sit in the room together and we discuss, you know, what's technically feasible, what can they offer us in terms of technology development, and then what do we really need to be able to do the science that we want to do? So, again, it's, it's a totally different vocabulary for me. You know, sitting, looking at a spacecraft design together, trying to work out, for example, can we have an extra panel of detectors? And then working out whether they, how much would that cost to mm-hmm. put it on? Would it fit inside the rocket anymore? Um, what are the electronics requirements? Where would it need to be launched? That, that kind of thing. So, yeah, it's a very, very iterative process. We don't sit very separately.
4: Right, OK. Um, uh, before I get back to the oceans and the waves, um, polarimetry... What did you mean by polarimetry?
5: Okay, so polarimetry in the so this is something that's been done a lot in, in other wavelengths. Okay, for a long time, polarimetry in the X-rays. It's a different way of looking at the X-ray radiation. Okay, there has not been a polarimeter in X-ray launched yet. So this is a, so it's a technique that people have tried in other wavelengths, never tried in the X-ray, and it's basically getting more information about the X-ray photons than we've had already. Um, it tells us, for example, very interesting things about magnetic field configurations uh, in neutron stars. Now, NASA is going to be launching a mission called XPay. Um, so XPay will launch, I think, early 2020 sometime, and that will be the first X-ray polarimeter mission to go up. Okay. The enhanced X-ray timing polarimeter that I'm working on would be about four times larger than that in terms of polarimetry area. Okay, so we're aiming to make the next generation, basically, of X-ray polarimeter but it's, it's a whole new set of information. It tells you about the magnetic field geometry of neutron stars. It can tell you about the, the geometry of the system. So it gives you extra information.
4: All very important stuff when you're trying to analyse you know, neutron stars and their equation of state. Before we get too far away, waves in the, the hydrogen ocean? I'm intrigued.
5: Waves in the ocean. So we know that thermonuclear bursts are spotty. And this was one of the Rossi X-ray Timing Explorer's biggest discoveries. In about the first or second week of observation, um, they observed the thermonuclear burst, this bright burst of X-rays from the surface. And when you look closely at the radiation, the the big advantage of Rossi was it had very, very high time resolution. So you could snapshot very fast what was going on. And what they found is really fast variation. They see several hundred times a second, there's a little wiggle on top of the the X-ray light curve that you see. And they saw another thermonuclear burst from the same source, round about the same frequency seen in that source as well. Again, a few hundred hertz, several hundred times a second. Um, So basically what it looks like is that during the thermonuclear explosion, part of the star is getting hotter than the rest. And then what we're actually seeing is because of the rotation of the star, because it's spinning at several hundred times a second, Mm -hmm. as it spins, this hot spot comes in and out of our line of sight, just like a pulsar. Um, And we see that as rapid variation. Okay. So so now we know the spot is not completely fixed. It moves around a little bit because we see the frequency moving a little bit. Its amplitude is quite variable. And in sunbursts, we don't see anything at all. So it can come and it can go. So we've been trying to work out since 1996, what is causing this. We don't have an answer yet. One of the possibilities is that as the thermonuclear explosion kicks off, a thermonuclear wave Basically, a flame front spreads around the star across the surface. That then sets up, it, it bangs into itself on the far side of the star. So you get this thermonuclear tsunami moving around the star, smacks into itself on the other side, and sets up a kind of large scale wave in the ocean of the neutron star. That means half the star is a little bit hotter and half the star is a little bit colder. And then that very, very large scale pattern is what we see that's causing these wiggles in the light curve. That's just one possibility, um, and it's one of the ones we're investigating because it explains very nicely some of the features that we see. Um, It's by no means the only model that we're testing. Okay. Um, One of the other things we're looking at, for example, is the idea that the ocean becomes convective. These are very, very energetic heating events, and you know if you put a pan of water on the stove it's going to start convecting. Okay, so one of the possibilities is there are convective patterns forming, And we're seeing something more like the great red spot of Jupiter forming in the convective zones in the neutron star. So that's another possibility that we're looking at as well.
4: Wow. And this this is all on a very, if it's a neutron star, it's a body that's tens of kilometres potentially in diameter and a very long way away.
5: Exactly. And so all we're seeing are these tiny patterns in this tiny little thin ocean on the outside layer.
4: Right. Okay. Wow. Fascinating. How do you know it's a neutron star? Are they all pulsars and we're detecting in that way? Or is it um, other methods of of finding neutron stars?
5: Um, So basically, because they have these thermonuclear bursts, so we we can make some estimate of the size um, of the systems that we're dealing with. And again, the thermonuclear burst phenomenon is something that you have to have the surface of a neutron star to have. You need the strong gravity, you need the small size to get these bursts of the x-rays. So we are confident that if we see a thermonuclear burst, we are seeing a neutron star. You have no way of getting that in the right temperature if it's a white dwarf and you wouldn't see anything from a black hole because it has no surface to build up an
4: ocean. Yep. Or nothing that comes out of the uh, event horizon that we can detect. Okay. Um, So how far away are these objects? What's the the closest we've seen?
5: So we're talking at least a kiloparsec, basically. So a parsec is about three and a half light years. OK, so they're, they're quite a long way away compared to the radio pulsars where we know of many of that are closer. Um, so the stars I am looking at are mostly between about one and about 10 kiloparsec away from Earth. So they're not nice and close, sadly.
4: <laughs> Which would have been easier to, to look at and observe. OK, right. Um, so we've talked about satellites. We've talked a little bit about what you're going to talk about today Um, we're talking about surface phenomena but you're saying that that can also tell us about the interior of the neutron star
5: yes that's right so so one of the big questions is what sits inside a neutron star it's not just neutrons of that we are very very confident Um, at best and well at simplest if not at best it's a mixture of neutrons some fraction about five percent of protons basically some electrons in there as well but the densities are about getting up to 10 times the typical atomic nucleus. Um, so it's a far more neutron rich mixture than we could ever make in a nucleus upon Earth that will be stable. And it's, it's the gravitational confinement that lets you keep things stable. Um, so at the very kind of simplest, we have neutrons and protons in a very, very unusual state of matter, basically very cold, very high density. However, there are many more interesting possibilities. Um, one is that given this material is confined for a long time by gravity, You have time for weak interactions to operate as well. So basically you start to build up strange matter as well. Now that may take the form of things like hyperons. Um, A hyperon is a baryon, just like a neutron and a proton, has three quarks, Um, but at least one of those quarks is a strange quark rather than just an up or down quark.
4: Okay, so normal matter is up or down? Normal matter
5: is up or (coughs) down and a hyperon would have a strange quark in as well. Alternatively, the hyperons dissolve and you have some kind of deconfined quark mixture, up, down and strange quarks. And there are lots of other possibilities as well. So our nuclear physics colleagues are very creative, at coming up with things that might exist at such high density and such temperatures if you can keep the material there for a long time. So we would like to be able to understand what is inside the core of neutron stars. So how do we do that? We need to relate the nuclear physics and our, un- our uncertainty about the nuclear physics to things that we as astronomers can measure. So one of the things we know is that, okay, we, we have to build a stable star. So we have to balance the pressure forces of the material with gravity. Okay, we have to do that in relativity because these are strong gravity objects, mm-hmm. but we know how to build a star basically theoretically. Um, so I can take my nuclear physics model and I can make a prediction, for example, for the, the mass and the radius of the star for a certain central density. So I can map my my nuclear physics equations to perhaps a mass radius relationship that I expect. So then you think, okay, I, I have some prediction for what the mass and the radius of this thing would be. So I need some way of measuring, you know, the mass and the radius of the star. The radiation that we see from the surface, basically is coming from the deep, deep inside the gravitational potential well of the neutron star. As it comes towards us, it's affected by relativity. Basically it's got to escape from the gravitational potential well, so you have gravitational redshift, which depends on things like the mass and the radius. Um, It's going to be affected by the spin of the star, they're rotating several hundred times a second. That's an appreciable fraction of the speed of light, so we have special relativistic effects in there as well. So basically if I take relativity as we understand it, and I say alright, I have a spot of some kind on the surface of the star, so assuming I know what's going on on the surface, I can basically make a prediction for what I would see given a certain mass and radius, basically as a distant observer. And that is what we're trying to do. Basically we're trying to take the information from the hotspots, basically that we see on the surface, and we're trying to map that back to gain information about the mass and radius, for example, of the star of the gravitational field. And then we're trying to use that to learn about the nuclear physics inside. So we are using relativity as a tool Basically it's a beautiful okay. theory, but it's also a very useful thing.
4: Yep. Yeah. Wow. Interesting Um, one thing that's just occurred to me um, Things something seismologists do for example is to use explosions on the surface to explore um, The interior of the, of the earth or of the, the body they're looking at. Is this a similar sort of concept? Can you can you do the same kind of thing?
5: So in principle, yes. Um, So there was a lot of excitement. In fact, actually, probably the last time I did the Jodcast, which is, you know, at least over a decade ago, was the idea that we'd seen for the first time seismic vibrations from a neutron star. Um, This is on a a different type of neutron star, one that's not accreting, a very, very highly magnetic class of neutron stars called magnetars. Mm -hmm. We know they have very, very large magnetic flares that we see in the gamma ray. Um, quite rare the very largest events but you also see smaller ones just as you see smaller earthquakes and for the first time so about 2004-05 there was a giant flare very very large magnetic explosion at the end of 2004 from a magnetar and for the first time in, in the light curve of that event again people saw high frequency vibrations and the easiest interpretation that we could come up with was that this magnetic explosion basically was setting the whole star vibrating and we were seeing... Okay several different harmonics of the neutron star vibrating. And there was a lot of excitement from myself and my collaborators at the time that we could use this to figure out the composition inside. It turned out to be much more complicated than we thought. The nuclear physics is important, but because what we're seeing is a magnetic field phenomenon, um, and these are strongly magnetized neutron stars, it turns out the magnetic field has a very large effect on the dynamics as well.
4: Okay. We
5: have very little idea what the magnetic field configuration of these stars is and again what you would see depends quite strongly on what you assume for the magnetic field. So I think right now it's telling us something very interesting but isolating out what the nuclear physics is telling us compared to what the magnetic field physics is telling us has been very very challenging to do.
4: Anna, well thank you very much for an interesting discussion today and thanks again for taking the time to come and talk to us. I hope we see you again in Manchester very soon.
6: Thanks for that, Tom.
1: Now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all the bits that don't quite fit anywhere else. The odds and ends. So we are starting with Emma this week, who I think has an update on some massive news from a while back.
2: Yeah, so you might remember that back in October it was officially announced that LIGO had detected a gravitational wave um, a couple of months previously in, in the August of last year. And, excitingly, an electromagnetic counterpart was also detected. So, just to give people a refresher on LIGO, seen as it has been a while since it was in the news, um, it's a gravitational wave detector, and gravitational waves can be thought of as ripples in the fabric of space-time, and these result from the acceleration of some massive astronomical body. We've had theories of these waves for over a century, and they were first proposed by someone called Henri Poincaré in 1905, And Albert Einstein's 1916 theory of general relativity also predicted them. But up until recently, we had no way of testing to see if they actually existed um, until LIGO came along. And I say came along. It was um, the work of many people over many years, as is the case for most scientific instruments. Um, So yeah, LIGO stands for the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. And it consists of two L-shaped interferometers in the USA. And they fire lasers down each arm of the L. Um, which are two and a half miles long, and they bounce them off a mirror on each end and time how long it takes for the lasers to come back. And with the lasers travelling at the speed of light, um, this timing can measure the lengths of the arms, um, and through that you can detect these gravitational waves, these ripples in space time. Um, And even when LIGO is teamed up with Virgo, which is a similar setup in Italy, it's very difficult to pinpoint the direction from which your gravitational wave has come from. So even though we've detected around a dozen gravitational waves so far, we don't know where they've come from necessarily, other than a reasonably large patch on the sky.
1: It's like half the sky, I think. You can you can just about say yeah, it's it, it, like, or like it's like one of the quarters of a or like half a hemisphere.
2: Yeah, there's there's some di- there's diagrams that you can make which show the the likelihood of it being in a particular area of the sky, but um, you know previously it's, it's been far too large to be able to pinpoint where these possibly could be coming from um and until uh last august um because a humongous effort um globally from astronomers meant that as well as detecting gravitational waves um they also managed to detect a, an electromagnetic counterpart so that's light from all over the electromagnetic spectrum so visible light um as well as gamma rays radio waves yeah, all, all across the spectrum so we had a precise location um and this was an elliptical galaxy 140 million light years away it's, it's quite. That's hard. that's
1: yeah. how. So in in terms of how far away that is compared to say Andromeda, like is it like is it is it outside of a galaxy? Let's uh, th- we're just going to have some lift music um, here while Emma um, googles. Yeah.
2: Well, I, I don't know how far
1: away the Andromeda galaxy is. Uh, it's, you're an astronomer. You should it's know. Two and a
2: half million light years away.
1: <clears> okay. So is it is it within our galaxy?
2: Uh, no, no, so it's originating from um, a galaxy 140 million light-years away.
1: 140 million light-years yes. away, and Andromeda is...
2: Two and a half million Okay,
1: away. right, it's a lot further. It's right, a lot yeah. further than Andromeda, <laughs> yes, yeah. Okay, yeah, sure. Uh, no, th- th-
2: this is definitely extragalactic in origin. So, yeah, so that was some of the big news um, out of last year. I would argue that it was one of the most significant astronomical discoveries of 2017. Um, but the thing with science is it doesn't just stop. People have been monitoring this, um, this event at the location of this event um, ever since we observed it um, last year. So, we knew at the time that the uh, gravitational wave event was caused by two neutron stars colliding. Neutron stars being the, the remains of uh, a supernova explosion. They're the remains of a dead star, basically. And so, we knew that these two neutron stars collided and it left behind a remnant that was around two and a half times the mass of the sun, which left a bit of an open question. Is this object that has been left a really big neutron star? Um, If it is, it would be the largest neutron star that we know of, or did it turn into a black hole? And if that was the case, that's also exciting because that would mean that it is the smallest black hole that we know of. Um, So how do you tell the difference between a black hole Neutron star. One of the things you can look at is the x rays coming from it. So, um, some people have been monitoring the site of this gravitational wave event with the Chandra X ray Observatory and they found reasonably low x ray levels coming from the site of this gravitational wave event. And this implies that it is a small black hole. So, we still need to monitor it. I say we. As, as is the case, but I, it's not actually me that's doing this, it's some other astronomers um, so pe- people are still monitoring it but at the moment it's looking likely that it, this is the smallest black hole that we know of, which I think is pretty cool but but, pretty cool. but as with a lot of science it is still ongoing, so watch this space
1: So you're looking for x-rays from a black hole
2: Yes
1: um, so is, Oh, is this from the accretion disk around it rather than obviously the black hole itself or, so what's actually causing the x-rays?
2: Yeah, so it will be accretion.
1: Do Do we know like so? I I do not know anything about black holes or neutron stars. Um, why why is the why do neutron stars not accrete? Do they do they not have accretion disks themselves?
2: So if this object was a neutron star, it would have a very very strong magnetic field, and this in turn would produce very bright X ray emissions. And um, black holes also produce X rays um, through their accretion disks, but we would expect this at a lower level than what would be coming off a neutron star. So given the level of x-rays that have been observed to come off this object, for the moment, it's looking likely that it is the smallest black hole that we know of. But that could still change, so it's it's worth uh, following.
1: You were telling me while we were off air briefly that you had a fun fact about LIGO. What was your a... fun fact about LIGO? I do
2: have a fun <laughs> fact about LIGO. So as I was saying before, the way that LIGO measures the distance of its arms, so... Uh, to, to detect these ripples in space-time, um, it, it does this by bouncing lasers off of mirrors, and it can detect the, the change in mirror spacing of less than ten thousandth of the diameter of a proton, which is a mind-bogglingly small amount, and is equivalent to measuring the distance from Earth to Proxima Centauri, our nearest star, to the accuracy smaller than the width of a human hair.
1: That's insane. It's,
2: it's it's a brilliant instrument, and um, yeah, it's it's come out with these. So, it was, like I said, I think it was the the, the result of 2017, and uh, it's the gift that keeps on giving as well.
1: Sorry, ten thousandth the width of a proton.
2: Yes, I mean, it, I think there there is some nuance into how you define the width of a proton because when you get down to those small cells yeah. everything just becomes a bit squiggly. But like,
1: it's like, so you're talking like ten to the minus nineteen meters, ish.
2: It can measure up to ten to the um, length, relative length variations of order ten to the minus
1: twenty-two. Okay, they're just showing off at this yeah. point. I I
2: think, by <laughs> the way, whatever the numbers are, it's it's smaller than the human brain can comprehend. We're not very good at yeah. thinking about very big things or very small things. No, I say, it as an astronomer that has mm. to think about very
1: big things. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, speaking of not being able to think about very big or very small things, we're going to get our turn to Rachel in the Sky with Diamonds.
6: Hi, I'm Rachel, and in more recent news, um, this past week on June 11th, it was released in the um, publication Nature that a correlation between anomalous microwave emission um, and nanodiamonds was discovered. Um, And this is a really great story, one that I really like, and it sort of begins um, where, you know, decades ago, anomalous microwave emission, um, which is basically a a glow of microwave uh, light um, coming from a number of regions in the night sky. Um, was discovered, but nobody has quite yet identified uh, the source of this um, AME. Um, and so uh, another scientist, Dr. Jane Greaves, who is currently at Cardiff, she's been studying uh, the disks around young stars for a very long time um, using uh, radio telescopes. And so she was looking at this uh, this sample of young stars and their disks and trying to study how planets form within the disks, and she noticed this uh, sort of spike of emission in the thermal dust spectrum, which is normally, you know, quite smooth, it, it's quite a smooth um, increase uh, in frequency and uh, with brightness uh, that we typically see due to blackbody radiation from the thermal dust. And so she sort of was very puzzled about this bump um, in the spectrum. And this bump is also very characteristic of anomalous microwave emission, and it occurs at around, you know, tens of gigahertz um, in frequency, um, and. It was proposed that this bump was due to uh, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons which are sort of you know these these carbon-rich molecules um and in everyday life we sort of know them as soot you know exhaust from cars and and plane engines um but they're also often found um, in star formation regions but uh nobody's really been able to find a correlation between these PAHs and the anomalous microwave emission. Sorry if we have a lot of acronyms flying around. Sorry,
1: what's the PAH again? So the
6: PAH is the polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. Okay, right. Um, yep. Which I did a disservice to myself choosing <laughs> this article. Um, but, uh, so basically they were proposed to be what was causing the anomalous microwave emission, but no correlation has actually been found. So there was no actual detection of both anomalous microwave emission and polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons um, at the same time um, but what Dr. Jane Greaves found is that she had this bump in the spectrum that was consistent with anomalous microwave emission um, around a young star that was also observed to have nanodiamonds within the disk and um, she thought this was quite interesting but what was more interesting was when she was talking to Professor Anna Scaife here at the University of Manchester about it and of course, Anna kind of explained, oh, I've seen this too, because she had been studying anomalous microwave emission around young stars um, as well. And so she, you know, pulled out some of her data and um, she also had two young stars that um, observed this bump in the spectrum. And it turned out that they were also both stars that had um, nanodiamonds within the disks as well. So they have these three... Um, young star candidates all with discs known to have known to harbor nanodiamonds and they all have this bump which indicates anomalous microwave emission um so this was quite remarkable really um and so they sort of what they called they did a sort of sherlock holmes like method where they eliminated all of the other causes that could potentially cause this spike in the spectrum but um they deduced that uh the microwaves um were due to the presence of these nanodiamonds um, and they had quite a strong correlation, and yeah, it was a really, really interesting journey.
2: So what, what are... I think this is, this, is, this is going back to the scale of things, but what, what do nanodiamonds look like? You know, if you, can you look at them through a microscope? What are, are they... because I'm just imagining them as, you know, the, the little kind of cartoony diamonds almost, <laughs> just in a little ring around uh, a star.
6: So the nanodiamonds are minuscule carbon crystals layered with frozen hydrogen. And what's significant about them is their structure, which allows them to emit electromagnetic radiation as they spin. And because they're very small, they can spin really, really fast, um, which causes them to emit light in the microwave range instead of, let's say, the metre wavelength range.
2: So now I'm just imagining little cartoon diamonds just emitting lots <laughs> of energy.
1: Yeah, ca- cartoons are great. It's yeah. the, <laughs> the way to think about things. But like, so if, if, if you're detecting nanodiamonds through this anomalous microwave emission but you knew that the nanodiamonds were there already. How did you already know that the nanodiamonds were there?
6: Right, so they didn't detect the nanodiamonds. Um, They detected the anomalous microwave emission using the Green Bank Telescope in West Virginia and the Australia Telescope Compact Array in New South Wales. Um, So the previous observations of the nanodiamonds...
1: Fair enough. I assume
6: assume that would have been done in a different...
1: what and there's there's there there are known
6: yeah so it's just these these particular stellar systems are known to harbor nano diamonds, which was um, deduced from separate observations and then these particular observations were just of the microwaves and they saw this bump in the spectrum where they would normally be observing planet formation um and then the coincidence between the (laughs) Anomal, the anomalous microwave emission. Ame, that's what (laughs) (laughs) we
2: use.
1: My voice has just gone. My odd end this time is kind of an update from Mars. Um, So, as hopefully many of our listeners are aware, uh, there are currently a few uh, rovers roving on Mars. Um, Five gold rings as well. Um, The. Uh, so there's there's been two big bits of news uh, recently. So there's um, one from Curiosity, uh, which is basically that um, Curiosity has found what are known as tough organic molecules um, in the uh, in some sedimentary rocks. So this is um, organic molecules, so containing carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, um, and these are known as organic but they aren't necessarily indicative of life. I should, at this point, right at the top, say, we have not found life on Mars. Um, But it could be a sign that there could be life on Mars, but it's all very hypothetical at this point. Um, Could have
6: harboured life in the past. Could have harboured
1: life in the past. Um, And actually, that's looking more likely um, to be an explanation for it, because there is... Um, so Curiosity is in, uh, like basically lives in what's known as Gale Crater, um, which is just a large region. It's a large crater um, on Mars, and there is a small, I say small. There is an old lake bed in there um, that was a water lake, and it's done analysis of these of the rocks and soil around there, uh, and found that actually at, at one point in time, Gale Crater that lake. Um, held all the ingredients needed for life so the chemical building blocks it also had an energy source of like the sun and like possibly thermal heating but tectonics is dead on mars so we don't really know when that particularly stopped but that area has these organic molecules in it which is really cool that's really exciting um but there's also i like i was reading into this and there's actually it, it, there. That announcement kind of overshadowed another one. So there were two science papers released um, as of... So we're recording this on the 15th? 14th. 14th of June. Um, and um, the like, So I think it was a couple of days back that um, two papers got released. Uh, one got jumped on by everyone and one kind of has still been reported on. And it's looking at uh, the levels of methane in the atmosphere. Um, so Mars still has an atmosphere, but um, it's much, much thinner. Um, which is part of the problem that I will come on to for opportunity in a minute. But, um, so Mars's atmosphere has a level of methane that actually goes through a cyclical pattern. Uh, so a cycle of um, during summer it increases, and um, during the winter it decreases. And there's no real known mechanism for why this is happening. It's basically the, the, um, the, the way that it's described is, is the planet breathing... Um, which I think is kind of a an interesting way of putting it because methane could very well be given off by something living.
2: So just to clarify this is this is a
1: yearly cycle. This basically. is a yearly cycle. So Could curios- It curi- could not
2: be to do with the polar caps melting. It and could, refreezing. It
1: could be to do with the polar caps melting and refreezing. Jennifer Eigenbrode is the um lead author on this paper and she um the the main um the me- the be- the best model that they have for these fluctuations is that there is the methane is coming from deep underground in Mars, uh, and it's basically making its way to the surface through pores, fissures, cracks in the rock, um, and then basically when it's cold in winter, the methane sticks to the rocks and doesn't sort of it doesn't travel as well, uh, and then when it's warm, it just sort of flows out. So you get more in summer, um, and Jennifer Eigenbrode's um, Sort of quote about this um, is that actually the um, the methane and the organic material could be related. Um, so they're re- they're released as separate papers and they they are treated separately, but they could be very much related. Um, and so you might have organic material at depth um, which is going through sort of processes uh, such as decay. Um, if you have like organic matter and you let it decay, it turns into methane. Um, or there could be. For that sort of thing to happen, you quite often need organisms um, to actually process this stuff. Um, so detritivores, things that just kind of de- bacteria-type things that help decay stuff. So actually, there there could be potentially some form of life deep underground in Mars. We don't know at this point. We found very exciting signs. We haven't found life. I will stress that again.
2: Not not yeah not not yeah. Sure, um, <laughs> what's the word. Um, dampen. Dampen your odd end of it, but it does feel like we get a story about life on Mars, or potential mm. life on Mars, or something that can be vaguely linked to life on Mars of, at least every few months.
1: Yeah, but like most of those are look at this photo, there might be a face. Like, Some of, <laughs>
2: what, what kind of uh, news places are you looking
1: at, Josh? I just BBC, like, yeah. <laughs> slow news days. Yeah. And,
2: did you have another
6: happy story to tell us about the
1: yes. Rovers? Yes, I had a very, very happy story to tell you about the Rovers. So, uh, Curiosity's sister, um, older sister, uh, Opportunity, um, is uh, has been on Mars now for about 15 years uh, and is currently in the stage of going from being on Mars to being slightly under Mars, um, as there is a massive dust storm uh, currently going on. So, the... Like I say, we're recording this on the 14th of June. Um, on the 2nd of June, this was first seen. Um, and it was kind of about the size of North America, which is pretty big. Um, and since then, um, it, is, uh, it has grown to the size of Asia. It's currently covering about a quarter of Mars. Um, and Opportunity is slap bang in the middle of it. Um, Opportunity has gone completely to sleep at this point. Um, they've lost contact with it. So Opportunity has a, um, a fail-safe mechanism, basically, when because it's solar-powered. Curiosity doesn't suffer from this because it has a little nuclear battery, but Opportunity is solar-powered. And when it doesn't have enough light, it shuts down everything except for a clock, that wakes it up periodically to check how much power it has s- to see if it can actually get up and move again. Um, and... Yeah, so the the pictures, the last pictures that were sent by uh, by Opportunity before we lost everything or lost contact with it, rather, um, show the sky of Mars turning from the sort of reddish of day to just straight up black. So, like, there, there's um, there's a tweet that I will link in the uh, on and end section uh, on on the website if you listen through that. Um, but there's a tweet from Spirit and Opportunity of this, this composite image of this sky slowly darkening, and then it turns into simulations, because Opportunity is asleep. Uh, and actually, the, um, the very, very darkest image in that is uh, um, Tau 8. So this is, Tau is just basically a measure of how opaque the atmosphere is. Um, currently, it's Tau 10. Um, like, so the, the darkest image on this is pretty much black. It's two more black than that. <laughs> if, if that is a scale that anyone has any reference to over a podcast. Describing pictures is always a terrible medium for this sort of thing. I'm going to move on from the pictures. Basically, uh, if we recorded this a little bit later, um, NASA are actually doing a press conference. At the time of the release of this episode, we might know some more about Opportunity, um, whether or not it's been completely buried, or if they've managed to get contact with it again or something like that but um yeah 15 years it's been there um and spirit uh was also another mars rover which suffered a very similar fate i think fairly recently well not fairly it recently wasn't recent. it wasn't recently it was like <laughs> it seven really years ago that, wasn't it yeah. i you you know far more rachel about um yeah, it was rovers, a
6: similar. It was a similar situation. Um, spirit also had too much dust covering her, and she just couldn't um, get enough energy from her solar panels to turn to wake back up. Is how it was described. So it was Aww. quite heart crushing. <laughs> there was a a Twitter campaign going around called Free Spirit um, hashtag Free Spirit, I should say. And
1: there's a, there's, a, there's a really tragic XKCD comic about Spirit as well.
6: Yes, that one's really it's, depressing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I was at uh, JPL back in 2008, and that's when we were building Curiosity. So I was able to, I was actually quite lucky enough to, to watch Curiosity being born, so to say. And at the same time, Phoenix, the lander, was also at one of the poles um, uh, landing, I think, at the minute. But um I was able to chat and hear talks from some of the Mars rover drivers, which A, is hands down the coolest job title ever. Yeah. But um, when you just when you just hear how how passionate they are about these robots and like they definitely assign personalities to them as well, and you hear them talking about it, you just you really get you really get involved with the with the Spirit and Opportunity rovers for sure.
2: I was um, talking to Christina Smith recently, who uh, jobcasters may remember. Her voice from uh, however many years ago it was that uh, she was a drugcaster and uh, she she does actually work on stuff for for curiosity now, and uh, I I did have a catch up with her recently, and that will hopefully go out in an interview at some point. But uh, yeah, no, I think it's definitely one of the coolest jobs to have. Absolutely.
1: It's, uh, the the only like the, the only other job title that I've ever found that kind of rivals Mars rover driver, driver. <laughs> is planetary defence. Uh, was it planetary defense secretary, nice. which is um, a job at, of someone at, again at NASA? Um, I think they deliberately go out of their way to make these job titles really cool. But it's their job to make sure that, like Curiosity and Opportunity, aren't covered in bacteria. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so that when we find organic matter, we know that it is actually from Mars. Uh, here is Insong Lee and Matt Malenta with Ask an Astronomer.
7: Colin Stanning asked, "Are there any non-Newtonian fluids that could be used in neutrino detectors instead of water that would help limit the damage caused when one of the modules blow up, or and so prevent the extensive damage caused by such a situation as happened recently? I'm guessing Custard isn't suitable."
8: Um, so, in general, we are already using neutrino detectors that do not rely on water. Uh, One of the fairly popular methods relies on reaction with chlorine-37, where the collision with the electron neutrino results in the production of argon-37 and electron. The argon atoms are then captured and counted periodically because they are unstable in nature and because it can undergo a reverse process so they can capture a free electron and become chlorine-37 again. Counting the number of remaining argon-37 atoms gives a good estimate on the number of neutrinos that had to be captured. And this type of neutrino detector had a considerable contribution to our understanding of the properties of neutrinos and the standard model itself. For example, the Homesteg experiment, run in the late 60s and early 70s, detected a discrepancy between the number of predicted electron neutrinos and those that were actually detected coming from our Sun. So, this difference was non-negligible as only a third of the expected electron neutrinos were detected. If that rings a bell and you think it has something to do with the fact that we know that three flavors of neutrinos exist, you are correct. This was the first evidence something was not right and it took scientists nearly three decades to confirm that neutrinos have mass and can oscillate between the three flavors and the majority of electron neutrinos released by the Sun turn into a different flavor before they manage to reach the Earth and our detectors. But now back to your original questions about water based detectors. The detectors you are referring to generally use heavy water or normal water or add a transparent medium. They are designed to detect Cherenkov radiation, which is emitted when a charged particle moves faster than a speed of light in a particular medium, and do not confuse that with the speed of light in vacuum C, which, as far as we know, no objects with mass can move at that or greater speed. This flash of radiation is very weak and has to be picked up by sensitive photomultiplier tubes to be detected. It is therefore necessary that liquid or any medium that they are placed in is as clear as possible. But as you've said, the damage is a real concern in this type of detectors, with the best example being the loss of more than 6000 detectors from the Super Kamio Neutrino detector Assuming a price of $3,000 per tube that gives us $80 million to replace the broken tubes, not counting the time spent on the maintenance and draining and filling the detector with water again. Even though it is expensive, it is relatively cheap compared to other solutions. So Super Cameo has a volume of approximately 50,000 cubic meters With an approximate density of 1.3 tons per cubic meter, we would require at least 65,000 tons of custard to fill the whole detector. That is 65,000 kilograms of custard, or 65 million kilograms. I was able to find the relatively cheap custard at about one pound per kilogram, which gives 65 million pounds to fill the entire detector with custard, which means you could replace 6,000 detectors... Almost four times. And still have some money left. So I think even economically, filling the detector with custard does not make much sense at the moment. And yes, kids, that's what you need a PhD for. <laughs> calculating how much custard it takes. <laughs> anyway.
7: Francis Day asked... Does the recent finding that there are 10 times more galaxies in the universe than previously thought have any impact on estimates of dark matter contribution to total mass?
8: So we get asked this question fairly often in one form or another when a previously unaccounted for stars, black holes or like in this case galaxies are found. And one important detail is that this survey detected galaxies at a distance of more than 13 billion light-years. So some of the observed galaxies existed when the universe was only around 1 billion years old. So that's one important detection. So that's one important distinction. Not 10 times more galaxies that are currently present in the universe, but which were present over 13 billion years of the evolution of the universe. The two trillion galaxies also, they have not been observed directly, but has been approximated to also account for galaxies too small or too faint to be picked up by even the longest currently available observations with the Hubble Space Telescope. This number actually gets us closer, if anything, to the matter density of the universe expected from the theoretical calculations and obtained by observing the cosmic microwave background. Currently, we can only see about 10% of the matter that is expected to be there in the form of stars, galaxies and clusters. So whenever you hear that we find new massive objects in the universe, that only increases the proportion of the ordinary matter that we can observe. And not seeing the ordinary matter is totally different from the dark matter, which we can actually observe indirectly through the interaction with the ordinary baryonic matter. We do know what the ordinary matter is. We know that it's made out of quarks, protons, neutrons, electrons, etc., etc. And we know how much we are expected to see it, and we know how much there is in the universe. But some of it is just too far or too faint for it to be observed. But cosmology tells us that there will never be enough for it to account for effects of dark matter. Simon Street
7: asks... I was milling things over in my mind and some doubt confirms started to creep in. Is it just me or are others worried with the degree of effort to look for or the possibility of life in the solar system or exoplanets?
8: Well, I guess some people would be worried that there is not enough effort to look for life on other planets inside and outside our solar system. And, and they would argue that this is one of the most important, outstanding questions, not only from the scientific, uh, but also from sociological, philosophical, and even religious point of view. So proper exoplanet research has been around for less than three decades, since the first discovery in 1991. We've just shy of 3,800 confirmed planets, and around 4,500 awaiting confirmation, with the vast majority detected in the Kepler spacecraft, we are just beginning to scratch the surface of what is available. Also, in terms of our own solar system, we have truly started arriving at some conclusions about the possibility of life existing on Mars and other objects in the past, or even currently in the last couple of decades.
7: Would we be better spending budget looking at chemistry in general on Mars than focusing mainly on hydrocarbons, or organics, or... Is this a media distortion?
8: So, it is partially a media distortion or not. So, for example, a Curiosity rover is equipped with spectrometers that allow scientists to probe the existence of elements and molecules beyond the organic spectrum. So, for example, the chemistry and camera instruments, laser-powered LIPS, can detect elements expected to make up the composition of rocks including lithium, mercury or strontium etc, some of which, like Mercury, dangerous to humans and their identification is a primary concern for future manned exploration of Mars. Other instruments are tasked with searching for direct presence of water or indirect, including the detection of certain minerals, which can only be formed in the presence of liquid water. You will however be out of luck if you try to find any mentions of Mercury being found on Mars in the mainstream media as it can be generally viewed as less exciting than the presence of organic compounds. The largest scientific instrument which according to NASA makes up more than half of the science payload of curiosity is indeed devoted to searching for organic compounds. This is based on the assumption that life will follow a similar path to the one it took on Earth, and ultimately multicellular organisms will be carbon based. There are, of course, alternative hypotheses, with the arguably most popular one discussing the possibility of silicon based life forms. Alternatives to water as the necessary ingredient have also been proposed, such as ammonia or, or even sulfuric acid. However, with the abundance of organic molecules in the interstellar medium that we already observed, and can calentry be viewed at at different wavelengths. It is the safest assumption at the moment to search for the complex molecules based on carbon atoms.
7: I totally agree it would be amazing to eventually find extraterrestrial life, independent origin from Earth. But are we in danger of not doing good science and missing something, for example, Mars Curiosity, ExoMars 2020, etc.?
8: I would personally say that there are more imminent dangers to not doing science than search for extraterrestrial life which is also doing great science at the same time. For example, the SETI Institute is funded entirely by private donors with some programs involving astrobiology and astrochemistry supported by NASA. One of the primary examples in recent years is the Breakthrough Listen project funded entirely by a private person. It involves 100 million dollars being spent on searching for signs of extraterrestrial intelligence communications in the radio part of the electromagnetic spectrum. This money is being used to secure the telescope time, fund new processing facilities, and in certain cases help struggling radio telescope observatories which had problems with securing required funding in the years to come. The recorded data can be searched for the presence of astronomical signals such as pulsars and fast radio bursts, so that as much science as possible is done using the same dataset. The Allen Telescope Array is used for SETI, but also achieved a myriad of other scientific goals, such as the study of the structure and composition of our Milky Way, identification of new objects such as active galactic nuclei and black holes, and searching for gravitational waves. And to paint a general picture in terms of funding, the proposed budget for NASA for 2019. Is $18.9 billion compared to $1.3 trillion of US military budget. Out of those $18.9 billion, 10 are assigned to the space exploration, which will eventually result in humans landing on the Moon and Mars, part of which will be spent on the International Space Station, but a big chunk will go towards the new SLS launch vehicle which has already seen massive costs overruns, delays, and we will definitely see more in the future. Most cuts, for example, to the Earth Science Division, with the cut of around 6.5% between the 2017 and 2019 fiscal years, have been caused by certain people in power having different interests and priorities. At the same time, the Planetary Science Budget, which is used to fund, for example, Mars 2020 mission, is expected to increase by more than 700 million dollars between fiscal years 2017 and 2019, following a general trend of increased budget. So problems and controversies with the cost overruns and missed deadlines, for example for the Curiosity rover, and more recently the James Webb Space Telescope, show that the management problems, unexpected changes to the budget, and a misjudged development costs and time are the main threat to not only doing good science, but not doing any science at all.
2: Thanks for that one, Simon Matt. And now on to the feedback.
1: We have no feedback. Yeah, if you do want to get in touch, uh, you can do so. Uh, we have a website, uh, Jodcast.net. Twitter at
2: twitter.com slash Jodcast. Facebook at facebook.com slash
1: Jodcast. YouTube, which we very rarely use, um, I will be honest. I don't think we've put anything on there for five years. You can find us there, youtube.com slash jodcast.
2: Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us posts. The address is on the website.
1: We love getting posts. We have uh, we're currently sat in our little cubby hole that is our functioning sh- studio. Uh, and we have a wall absolutely festooned in postcards. I think my favourite one that I can see right now is there's a little Hobbit one um, which I quite like. Um, but yeah, if you go on holiday, send us, send us postcards. We like them. Thanks to Dr. Anna Watts and Ben Shaw for the interviews. The editors were Mark Kennedy, Naomi Asambra-Frimprong and Jake Morgan. The producer was Jake Morgan. Uh, until next time, John on! Yeah.